you are listening to the Cosmic Children Podcast, uh, today we have Destin in the studio with us, hey. with me. Yes, Destin. So, um, Destin, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you spell it? Uh, I'm personally curious. No, yeah, I always get this because, you know, people always just go, hey, uh, what, Justin? You know, something <laughs> like that. I, I got like Leslie before, so I don't know how. But okay. it's, essentially, it's Destiny minus the Y. That's how I usually say it. That's terrible. No, yeah, that's the easiest way to explain how to spell my name. Okay. Yeah, so, okay. <laughs> yeah. so, Destin, what is it that you do? Yeah, so I am a features writer with Epicure, which mm. is a food, it's a gourmet food and lifestyle magazine based in Singapore. Yes. And uh, yeah, so I mainly cover food. I do a bit of uh, drinks, a bit of travel here and there. But yeah, my main purview is uh, food in the local scene and the international scene. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what is your history with... Okay, let's start with what is your history of writing per se? Yeah, so fun fact, I actually have zero history of writing. Wonderful. So Not I, even blogging? Not even blogging. Okay. Not even Instagram. I mean like my Instagram captions are... shit captions, you know, it's just... <laughs> Five words, it kind of looks like a shit post, but you know, that's not the point. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah, so um, uh, I did not go to, I did not take journalism at all. Yeah. I did not take any writing courses or whatnot. I just sort of stumbled onto this job. Okay. So it's a story into itself. So actually, um, maybe I'll start with how I got started with food. Yeah. Yeah. So it was after poly and um, I was studying international business at that time. Fancy. And yeah, after my internship, I was a bit jaded, you know. It's kind of like I've uh, fucked the office life, like, you know, I don't want to do this for like. So I don't you're know. doing internship for international business? Yeah, so I was in Shanghai at that time. So I was working for about six months mm. already. And it was a very, just a very stifling, you know, like typical office job. Yep. You're just at your desk, you look at the screen, and you know, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and yeah, so when I came back, I was, I was going through a bit of a of an identity crisis, so to speak. Okay. Like, um, uh, not even yeah, a quarter, quarter life, life crisis, okay, like a quarter, beginning, like beginning of <laughs> life crisis, almost. But yeah, so um, so I got this part time job at a at a cafe okay. because uh, my best friend's sister was the manager there. Yeah, and yeah, so that kind of got it started, and uh, I had a lot of fun. I mean, I started as a waiter first, and yeah. then you know, very typical, became a barista, and then. One day I was like, hey, you want to try out the kitchen? So I was like, okay, sure. You want to try out the kitchen just like that? Yeah, so I was like, oh yeah, sure. Why not? I'll try one shift. And yeah, yeah it was fun. And um, that continued on for about maybe another I don't know, five months. At okay. least until I went to the army. Okay. And then um, after somewhere in the middle of army, I went to visit the a different cafe, but it was run by the same people. Okay. Yeah, because the previous one shut it. And um, yeah, so she met... So my manager which was my friend's sister, man, um, mentioned to me that she met this woman at a house party. Okay. And it turns out she was the director for this culinary school in Singapore. Wow. So it's the um, the Culinary Institute of, of America. Okay. So they have a partnership program with um, SIT. Mm. And um, yeah, so it's a two-year de- two course. It's a, it's a degree of... Um, culinary arts management somewhat. Mm. Yeah. So that's what it's officially titled. And uh, yeah, so she mentioned to this lady that, yeah, hey, uh, I got a, I got this um, cook who's working with me and, you know, he he's thinking about, you know, what to do next and uh, why not he join your school? And um, so yeah, I sent in my application, yeah. went for an interview and I was enrolled. So yeah, I spent two years there mm-hmm. and um. After that, when I came out, I thought, you know, oh, I'm still young. 
the kitchens are always hiring, so you know I should try and do something else with my time. And you were about like 22, 23 at this time? Um, that was last year, so rough, I was 25. Okay. But, okay, I, I started looking for a job at 24, like after army. Gotcha. Uh, sorry, after graduating. Yep. Yeah. And um, yeah, so some somehow or another more circumstances fell into place yeah. and I, I got a job at Epicure. And okay. uh, yeah, I was quite surprised because, you know, um, it's considered quite a high position title. Like, mm. it's quite a wanted job, I suppose. And uh, coming from a guy with zero qualifications in mm. writing, you know, I wasn't expecting it. Lah. And um, yeah, so quite thankful that I landed a job. So yeah, <laughs> here I am. And it's, yeah, it's been a year. So, you know, yeah, that's how it is. Interesting. Um, How have you... <clears throat> So you said you, you, you started off as a barista mm. and you went on later in a bit to being in the kitchen. How was that like though? Was it was it was it very um challenging? Um not not particularly. I think it was also because of the um the work environment of that cafe that I was working in. Yes. So this was um it's called Hoopla Cafe and Kitchen. I can't remember the exact name, but okay. it was at um Infinite Studios somewhere oh, in like One North area. Sorry, No, One North is like Commonwealth-ish. Ah, okay. Yeah. So it's like where um, Discovery Studios is and okay. all, all that nonsense. But yeah. So basically because of where we were, it wasn't necessarily busy. On weekdays, there were lunch crowds because of yes. all the office workers coming down. Yep. And then weekends, we'll get crowds. But beyond that, it's quite chill. Okay. So I suppose everyone there had a very similar mindset of like, you know, oh yeah, you just we just go with the flow. Or like as how we said back in the cafe, it was like, you know, a hey, lifestyle, you know, just do whatever. <laughs> la. Okay. So it'd be like it 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 didn't it wasn't exactly an official shift in job. It was more like, hey, today, uh, this guy not coming in the kitchen, and young come in and like try try it out. And it's like, okay, sure. And then sometimes it'd be like, hey, kitchen not that busy. Okay, I'll go back out and make coffee, you know, that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah, okay. it's, a, it's, it's a very, very flexible. Yeah, it's a very flexible environment. Yeah. Yeah. So in a sense, the transition wasn't that extreme mm. because I mean, it's just it's just a cafe. Like everyone's busy when it's busy. Yeah. When it's not busy, you just, you know, fuck around, play music. Yeah. Just chill out. So yeah. Yeah. Is there a difference between a cafe and a restaurant? Oh, for sure. It's okay. Because I mean, it's 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 very unfair to compare them because in a cafe, you you don't necessarily go to a cafe to to eat, right? I mean, this also depends on what kind of restaurant you're thinking about. If you're thinking about a casual place, or yeah. you're thinking about um like a high end fine yes. dining kind of place, yeah. Naturally, all of them are very different, and uh, I would say cafes are not to say that cafes don't think about their food. Mm. It's just that it's a different environment because you know I think it's something about the vibe as well because, um. I mean, you're not gunning for any awards or whatever. You just want nice Instagrammable food that people mm. are like, you know, come in and order and all that. And yeah, so um, it's no less busy. It's definitely busy. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So when you were going through culinary school, what did you learn there? Okay, so the culinary school was, is formal. So it's... Um, what do you mean by formal? Uh, like, I mean, they're considered prestigious in, in the States. Okay. Yeah. Expensive. Like, okay lah. It's, it's like um, 20,000 SM, so you Oof, know. Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. But um, yeah, so it's, um, the base is French and Italian cuisine. So that's mainly what I learned. Um, kitchen skills? Kitchen skills, yeah. Okay. So it's uh, two years and I think roughly maybe 60 to 70% of the time yeah. is uh, practical work. What, so, do you, what do you mean by practical work? 
So we are in the kitchen, actually. Okay. So the, it's at Tamasic Poly. That's where my campus oh, is. So Tamasic Poly has the Tamasic Culinary Academy. So it's like yes. this place with like fully functional kitchens and mm. a restaurant and all that. Yeah. So um, basically, it's a very busy studying schedule, actually. Cause, Could you elaborate? Yeah. So for example, we'll be, we'll be in the kitchen at maybe 8 a.m. Yo. <laughs> and then uh, we end kitchen classes at maybe 2 p.m. And then okay. there's lectures until about six. Oof. And eight, then so eight, eight to six, or effectively. Yeah, eight yeah. to six. Yeah. And then alternatively, it's like, oh, lectures start at 10, they end at two, and then we're in the kitchen until maybe about nine o'clock. You're in the kitchen to do uh, so t- to learn. Oh. So when we first start, we'll run through the basics. So it's really kitchen fundamentals. So it'd be like, oh, yeah, we're gonna cut carrots into large dice, medium dice, small dice, so on and so so. Okay, today we'll be learning how to make stock. Today we'll be learning how to mm. cook steak or whatever, you know? Yep. Yep. So it's very lesson-based. Okay. Yeah. And then um, once the basic program is finished, then it gets a bit more fun, you know? They're, you're doing um, a la carte cooking. So you're working with dishes and um, there's a lot of live service portions. So we'll get public, people from the public to come down and eat oh. and we'll cook for them. Wow. Yeah. Is yeah. that like a practical test or something? Not exactly. It's just like part of the part of the lesson plan almost. Okay. Because they want to simulate like a restaurant setting almost, mm. and there's no better way to do that than with like outside people. Yep. So yeah. So um, there are practical exams, but uh, yeah, practical exams are more just in between the instructors and us. There's no outside people to come and eat. Yep. Yep. So a course like that would be to I guess equip someone with the necessary skills to actually work in a kitchen. Yeah, yeah. So beyond that, because um, that's what you learn at like Shatek or at Sunrise as well. I've heard of Shatek. Okay, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. But those are like diploma level. So mm. for for my school, because it's a degree program, they gotta add a bit more uh, value add you know? <laughs> So so we got so we got like business management courses, yeah. um, cost control. What is cost control? So so you learn costing like essentially costing so, oh, yeah okay. costing cost. so okay, okay, yeah you. costing, and then there's some really like um uh how would I put it things that feel like uh added credit because we learn like history of food in America wow. so, and like, history of food in Asia and it's like completely bullshit la. okay okay but I mean it was still a fun it's, it's still fun you know you just go you research and then you present whatever yeah yeah. So, so it's it's like um so it's basically the practical side, the um business management side and the um the flair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you remember of your time then in school? Oh shit, I remember a lot, man. You remember a lot, okay. Yeah, no, because it, it, it I mean I just graduated two years ago. It's twenty twenty, so that means yeah, yeah. I think no. Yes, two years ago. Kind of fresh. Yeah, so it's still quite fresh. And um yeah, I mean naturally it's you you, you get a lot of I mean, for me, I'm a very, I'm a very tactile person. I learn best when I'm hands-on. When you're doing it. Yeah. So that's how I remember things. Yeah. And I think in in an environment like culinary school where you have to work really closely with your team. Yes. I mean, it's not like in poly, you know, you go on project, then some some fucker just like, yeah, hey, I don't I hate in my work lah. <laughs> so like, you no choice. You have to like kind of kind of like. Pick up the slack. Pick up the slack almost. Yeah. But in the kitchen, you can't do that because if some guy decides not to show up to work, you can't be like, ah, shit, yeah, we are down. We can't do anything. No, service still runs on, you know? Mm. So that kind of mindset is sort of inculcated into the culinary students in a sense. Okay. So everyone's very helpful, especially. Because I mean, I didn't come from a very um, 
high flying culinary background, so to speak. Like I had classmates who were from the culinary side from the Masik Poly, so they were doing that in Poly, and okay. they were by the time they reached uni, they were they already had like um, fine dining restaurants under their belt. You know, wow. they've starched there and here and yeah, like worked there and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, they're coming in with a lot more knowledge than me because you know I was coming from a, a cafe background. You stumbled into it, like, yeah, basically. yeah. Where it's like, hey, chicken stock, hey, shit. We never buy the the, <laughs> the carton container like that kind of nonsense. Yeah, yeah. All my classmates are like, oh yeah, shit. Come, let's do a proper stock, you know, put in all the, the herbs and shit. So, you know, yeah, it, it was a very different environment. And I was a bit intimidated when I went in first. But, you know, thankfully, I think my classmates were quite helpful. Uh. Mm. So, yeah, it's it great fun to work together with um, with people who are like-minded, I guess. Yeah. So, going through a course like that, which mm. is to equip you with skills, I guess, to either I guess, set up your own, run your own uh, restaurant or to work in a kitchen... Yeah. Did it steer you away from the kitchen though? Uh, well, it kind of depends. I mean, I, obviously I'm not in the kitchen now because, you know, I'm writing. But yep. um, I think that was partly because, you know, I wanted to keep my options fresh. But the second reason behind it was also because um, kitchen don't really pay very well. La, so, you know. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, not like journalism pays a lot better as well. But, you know, I just want, <laughs> I want to explore because, you know, I'm young. So whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, so I think that was a big reason why I didn't want to go into the kitchen directly out of school. Okay. But ultimately, I know my goal is to... I'll, I'll go back to the kitchen eventually. It's Interesting. just uh, it's just a matter of when. And uh, yeah, but I don't think it's... It's um, it's like it discourages you from working in the kitchen. Because I think nowadays, it's not like maybe 20, 30 years ago when the kitchen environment was very hostile. What do you mean by hostile? So because I think in the past especially, hierarchy is very important. Like, please like, elaborate. So, so yeah. for example, you yeah. in a, like, let's say for a fine dining French restaurant or whatever, yes. you have your commis chefs, which are like the... Commis chefs. Okay. Which are like private slices. Okay, yeah, let's use the NS analogy. So They're private like is the lowest of the low. Lowest of the low. Okay. So you got the commis chefs. Okay. And then you got the CDPs, the chef de parties, which are like the sergeants. So they run the station which has a few commis chefs under them, something okay. like that. Yeah. And then you go to the sous chef, yep. which is like a, like a lieutenant. So uh, he's like um, the second in command you almost. You have one sous chef? It uh, depends. Some places have up to three sous chefs. Depending on the size yeah, of the Yeah, sometimes there's even junior sous chefs. Gotcha. Yeah. And then after that, you've got like executive chef or head chef and those will be like, you know, the the big fucks. Yeah, the, <laughs> the major. La. Yeah, like the major and all that. La. <laughs> so essentially, I think in the past, they... they a lot of kitchens, especially like French kitchens, were very concerned with this hierarchy thing. Mm. So it's like, yeah, whatever the the executive chef says goes, you know, it's just... Like you cannot step out of line? Or is it? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Like, let's say, for example, he says, okay, I want you to do this dish and it has to be a certain way. And okay. you're like, but I think this way is slightly better, right? Yeah, that, that's a big no. Interesting. Or like, um, yeah, basically insubordination is like not a thing. La. Yeah. And I guess it was a bit stifling for creativity but I think nowadays it's a lot better I mean the most you see of the very old school kind of style of kitchen management is like a very televised version like maybe on like Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen that's maybe like how it used to be mm -mm. but I think now a lot more chefs are more understanding or maybe it's because you know social media is a thing now and people can just go and blast this yeah. chef like yeah. yeah this guy treats his stuff like shit or yeah. whatever yeah. so yeah I think 
the kitchen environment is a lot more welcoming now. Okay. So yeah, that's it. So mm. so when you look at uh, media portrayals of kitchens and chefs, mm. what is your take on it? Do you think it's accurate or is it just purely for show? Well, it can be accurate at times. Like I mean, there have been times in school in the kitchen where I've been like shouted at lah for sure. And um, is it because you fuck up? Yeah, no, no shit. Of course. <laughs> so like, yeah, I think there was there was one time in 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 school like we were supposed to prepare this dish yeah. and uh, I think it was we put it in the oven a bit late. And then late, okay. Yeah, late. So it was like, oh shit, five minutes and it, it won't come out in time. And then yeah, the instructor came over and he, he just looked us straight in the eye. It's like, you don't get a shit together, I'm gonna fucking throw you out of the kitchen. You know, that kind of shit. <sighs> then we just like, oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. okay, okay. <laughs> time, to, time, to, time to crank it up, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. almost. So yeah. Um, okay, so in terms of televised kitchens, I mean, with all television, everything, you gotta take it with like, you know, a little grain of salt because especially American productions, they tend to dramatize things a bit more. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think everything you see on TV, don't believe everything you see on TV, you know. Don't yeah, believe everything yeah. you see on TV. Okay. So, so for example, um, uh, one of my guest lecturers when I was at school was uh, Bjorn Shen. So he's That's the, also familiar. It's a yeah, local he's guy, the, right? He's the chef at uh, Artichoke. Gotcha. And uh, he's a judge on MasterChef Singapore. Okay. Yeah. So he's telling us about like the behind the scenes almost la. I think it's just shooting the shit with us and all that. And he was like saying, yeah, so you know all the tasting, you know, after they cook the dish and then mm. you, they'll go and taste the, the chefs will taste the food, right? Everything is cold because, um, you know, they're like, oh shit, six o'clock, time out, stop, stop touching your food, whatever. Yep. And the judges only eat like maybe two hours after. Yeah, it's cold. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cold as shit, but you know, because their logic is that it's it's that's the only way to be fair to all the contest contestants. Cause let's say you eat the first person's dish. Yes. By the time you get to the fifth person, it's probably cool. I mean logically it makes sense. Uh, logically but, it makes sense. Yeah. But you know what? <laughs> yeah. So what they do actually is during the cooking process, they kind of go around and like you see them tasting here ah. and giving tips. So that's when they're actually evaluating the food, yep. not at the final plate up. I understand. I mean obviously the the presentation is what they look at yes. for the final plate up, but you yep. know, yeah. And um yeah, that's just how it is. Have you always been a fan of shows like that? That showcases the, the artistry of, of food? Well, I mean, I used to watch a lot of Asian food channel. And, um, what is a- Asian food channel? Uh, it's like a food channel on like uh, Starhub. La. So, okay, okay. <laughs> the cable TV is actually okay. yeah, privileged, whatever. But, you know, yeah, so, um, yeah, it's just a lot of... I think back then, it wasn't reality TV for kitchens weren't that big. I mean, mm. now if you turn on cable TV, it's all like, you know, Top Chef, Chopped, uh, Master Chef, whatever, yeah. and uh, yeah, so I think I didn't really grow up with a lot of reality TV, culinary reality TV. I mean, I, I mm. watched a lot of Survivor and Amazing Race and that shit. But you know, <laughs> Amazing Race. But you know, yeah, back then I didn't watch Hell's Kitchen. And, uh, I, I guess the interest wasn't there yet. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit different, lah. You know, some people like I, I mean, I got classmates. You know, um, like all good uni when you start, you know, there'll be the introductory class. Where be like, okay, please stand up, tell us one interesting thing about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know that kind of shit. And I got friends who go in like, oh, when I was five years old, I attempted to make so and so some prawn consomme nonsense, blah 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 blah. Because <laughs> the question was like, oh, please tell me the first thing you you cook, lah. Yes, of course, yeah. And then everyone's like saying all these fancy shit. What and the fuck I just, you say? I just hear like. Yeah, so I tried making scrambled eggs and then like, <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Uh. Yeah, so I had a very different, yeah, I would say I was different from a lot of my classmates. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Was, was it difficult to get to school like that or were people just helping each other along the way through? 
Uh, yeah, people are helping each other. I, I don't I wouldn't say school was difficult per se. Okay. It, I mean it demanded consistency because you know you had to do things yeah. right, you know. And uh we are evaluated by a daily grade. So daily? It, yeah, daily grade. So oh, wow. every day that every day that we are in the kitchen, for example, it'd be like, okay, today we are making um, let's say mayo and hollandaise or whatever. So okay. we get judged on that. And then maybe a few more days down the road, it'll be like, okay, we'll be making this plated dish mm. and the dish has hollandaise. And then your hollandaise on that day will also be graded. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it's a lot to do with being consistent with how you put out your food. Yeah. But it's mostly teamwork. There's, there are individual portions. Mm. Um, majority of the basic classes are all individually taught. So yeah, putting to my instructor, he had to taste like, I don't know, 40 risottos in one day. But you know, that's, that's just how it is. Of and, subjectable um, quality. <laughs> yeah, of subjectable quality. Yeah, like some, some guy would have it burned, some would be like, wow. you know, oh, this is, yeah, your rice is fucked up, you know, whatever. But yeah, um, I think teamwork only came in later when um, we were doing the uh, live service kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, so it'd be like, So oh. like your one team, your own team running a live service for like real people coming in? Yeah, exactly. So it'll be um it'll be different dishes la. So maybe on one particular day there'll be uh five dishes. Mm. So each dish, I mean this is uh this is very inflated numbers. You never get this in a normal restaurant. What? So it'd be like five yeah. dishes, each dish one team, one team maybe like four people. Is that a lot or is that too little? That's way too much, man. I mean when much, you work okay. in a real kitchen environment, like shit, you're on one station you can have like eight dishes to, to your station. Yeah, and your station could be just you or maybe you and like the CDP. Can Can you paint a picture of how I would say maniacal there is one person doing eight dishes? What What does that look like? Yeah. It's a lot of organization and uh, yeah. So, is that overcooked? I mean, overcooked is a very distilled way of looking at okay. it. La. Yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously, um, when you... When you work in a kitchen with high volume and a lot of dishes, yeah. you have to work smart, not yes. work hard. Because, yes. you know, I mean, overcooked is like, oh shit, okay, new dish, I need to grab this, I need to chop this, whatever. In um in a kitchen, you do what's called a mise en place. So it means um everything in place. Everything so in place. So it's making sure that all the components that you need at your station for any particular dish. Yeah. So it can be, okay, for example, uh, the sauce is made beforehand. Yep. Uh, you got your garnish all cut. You got your, let's say, your protein ready to cook, ready to fire. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's what it means by having a mise en place. So it's that's what the instructors always beat into us at school that you know you've got to be really prepared. Make sure your station is well organized because mm. if it's cluttered, you panic. And I've I've had that before when like you know when shit hits the fan like hey shit where's my sauce? Like I try and find it, cannot find. <laughs> run to the cooler, grab out a batch of sauce, go heat it up, and then like you know everything gets delayed. Yeah. So it's really a lot to do with how much you prepare beforehand. Mm. Yeah. Which is why people in kitchens, they start early, you know. I mean, some places only do lunch and dinner service. But the chefs are in the kitchen from 8am. Sometimes they leave at 2am because, you know, you just got to prepare things. Wow. Yeah. So it's a lot of um, preparation. So you got you to gotta be very comfortable with what dishes that you're cooking. Yeah. And um, what goes into it. What do you need to prepare? Yeah. Mm. So... I guess, from what I can gather, you kind of have to be calm in the midst of the chaos. To a certain yeah, degree. for sure. For sure. Calm is the calm is the right word. Because, you know, if you're frazzled, you don't perform as well. And, you know, there's high tendency for you to snap at people. And, like, that's mm. the worst thing that happened in a kitchen. Because yeah. communication and teamwork is just so integral to a successful kitchen. You Do you know? think talent 
is is talent a thing in uh, culinary? Hmm. Of course. I think talent is. How would you describe talent in culinary? I think there's many ways that you can look at it. Okay. You could see it from the technical perspective, which is how well this person can cook. So, for example, how good his knife cuts are, mm. how how well he cooks meat, you know, to get it to the right doneness. Um, how good are his fundamentals? Yep. So, for example, can you cook ten over easy eggs in a row without messing any of them up? Sounds easy, right? But it sounds fucking difficult. But yeah, it's <laughs> it, it is tough and. <laughs> Like yeah, egg cookery is a is a very big thing. Yeah, it sounds stupid, right? But like sorceries, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. So we have like one whole lesson dedicated to egg cookery. Okay. So it's like forty people. Is that a real word? Egg cookery. Cookery, yeah, yeah like it's like cook, uh, yeah, I guess. Gosh, so it's yeah. like forty people just cooking scrambled eggs, hard boiled eggs, soft boiled eggs, poached eggs, over easy, over hard, over medium, like everything. Okay. I think on that day alone, forty people ran through like two thousand eggs Whoa. between all of us because it was yeah. like. And it's cook, troll, cook, troll. Yeah, cook, troll, cook, troll. Yeah, it's very wasteful. So, <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's it's for school purposes. So, you know, they just, they just mark it as educational cost. But yeah. Yeah. So, okay. um, yeah. Okay, back back to the back to the point on talent. Yeah, so there's the technical talent, which is how well you know your shit, yes. essentially. And then there's the creative element as well. Because, you know, I mean, you could have a restaurant that just serves basics, you know. It is just, oh, like, for example, let's say you have, um, let's say you have a French restaurant. Okay. You just serve croque monsieurs, you serve croquevans, whatever. Mm. Typical French dishes. Mm-hmm. But it takes creativity to be able to play with that formula and create something new, something fresh, something that people would, would go for. Which is, I think, what fine dining values a lot. Because, um, yeah, it's not so simple as just making a good dish. Mm. It's also about how you interpret the dish, how you serve it, how you plate it. Does it come out at the right temperature? Okay. What is the texture of it? Does it make sense with a wine pairing or whatnot? And that takes oh, talent. Because, okay, okay. I mean, you can do everything very technically like, and just go like, oh yeah, uh, red meat, red wine, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm. But there are nuances that if you have a good enough palate, you can make better food pairings. Uh. Yeah. Okay. So how how would you differentiate fine dining? Like the word fine in front of it, I think it, mm. it, it, it kind of confuses me because, okay, we, we talk about cafes, yep. how they're different from restaurants. Even within like, the, the restaurant umbrella there are different tiers yep. so would you classify fine, di- fine dining as part of this restaurant umbrella or is it totally separate yeah for sure um, I think restaurants are very catch all phrase because you know you've got casual restaurants is McDonald's got, a restaurant? Uh, I mean it's a fast food restaurant mm. but you know yeah I mean I, shit, I love McDonald's man but you know <laughs> that's not the point okay but yeah so fine dining is I would say the highest tier highest tier kitchen, okay. like, like, it's like the premier league like, I guess so yeah um in the sense that, you know, it's all about like, I think nowadays most fine dining restaurants are like tasting menus. There's very little a la carte fine dining. Nowadays. What do you mean by tasting menus? So tasting menus, it's very, it's it, so the industry has evolved to become a very chef-driven industry, you know. Like a personality? Yeah. So a chef would dictate the entire menu and be like, oh, okay, I want to start with this. This will flow into that. This is how I envision this dish. So everything is like the vision sure. of the chef almost. Sure. So that's how most tasting menus are. Mm-hmm. Because naturally, when you have a tasting menu, it will most likely be done by like the exec chef, the the, the person in charge essentially. The lieutenant. Yeah. Uh, the the major. The major, whatever. okay. Yeah. Okay. Together with the lieutenant. Okay. So you know, yeah. They'll be doing the battle plan. Okay. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I think fine dining is is it's the hardest to to maintain your quality as well. I mean this this is the tier that Michelin guide usually looks at, like, essentially. Mm. Yeah. 
fine dining restaurants. I mean, you got Hawker Chan and all that, but you know, that's a that's but a different with, case. with the word fine, is it yeah. a matter of ingredients or is it just a matter of the chef dictating like a, a personal artistic vision that he wants to infuse into the food? Mm, ingredients do come to play for sure. I mean, as much as, you know, go local, yo, but like a Malaysian tomato will never compare to like a heirloom tomato from, I don't know, Spain or whatever. Heirloom tomato. Heirloom tomato. What the fuck is that? So essentially what heirloom varieties are, are ancient varietals that were, that are not grown in modern times. So because, you know, for example, like um, let's look at bananas. So you've got, so the banana that everyone knows, the Del Monte banana or whatever. And do you see the... Yeah. It's a it's a varietal called a Cavendish. I okay. think I think that's what I remember. It's a Cavendish. So it's been a variety that's been grown for so long over a long period of time that that's just what everyone plants. Sure. Yeah. So essentially, there's actually way more types of bananas. Interesting. Yeah. Go that on. people don't <laughs> usually plant. So heirloom varietals are stuff that you know that it's not usually seen. Uh. So for example, corn. Corn is a very easy one to look at because everyone just knows yellow corn. You know. Yes. But when you go to Mexico. You've got heirloom varietals that are like purple, multicolored, blue, red, <laughs> yellow, blue? all on the same corn. Yeah, I'm not kidding. It's like, it looks like fucking Pandora bracelet of like <laughs> kernels. Because like, there's really a lot of colors. And yeah, that's just how varied these, these and varietals And it's not tempered with chemically. No, no, it's all natural. So it's like tomatoes as well. There's like, I think um, there's some varieties of highland tomatoes that's like the size of your head almost. Yo, it's and it's scary. like gnarled. It's not round and smooth. It's not perfect. It's like... Yeah, it's just it just looks strange, man. But okay. the flavor is, is, is different. So these heirloom um would you call them heirloom vegetables? Or is yeah. it like a something like a like a it's like a label, like Um It's a label it? for sure. Okay. But uh yeah, it, it's just to 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 show a different kind of ingredient almost. Interesting. Yeah. Because the- I mean the another reason why these varietals were were faded away over time because they're not the most cost efficient. So what, what do you mean? So so for example, for let's say the Malaysian tomato variety, you yep. know, they're meant to be mass produced. Mm. So flavor is not the main concern. It's about yield. How many uh, tomatoes can they produce? Okay. So a lot of um genetic modification okay. and selective breeding is to produce uh, for tomatoes. Not just tomatoes, I mean every single vegetable, food Animals, animals yeah, even selectively yeah. bred to 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 be um, favorable for for us humans, mm. So it's like how, um, for example, in the past, watermelons were like maybe twenty percent flesh, and then they were slowly bred until it's like what what it is now all flesh, yeah, oh, essentially. And it's like for 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 animals as well, you know. Nowadays, chickens are bigger; they've got bigger breasts, mm. big, large wings. Yes. And like, uh, yeah, essentially that's just how the agriculture industry is because farmers got to make money, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so it's cheaper. So naturally, restaurants that are not fine dining will be like, oh, okay, what's the cheapest alternative that yes, we can get? The most they're cost not, efficient one. Yeah, yeah, they're not as ingredient driven almost. Yeah. So I think nowadays, especially in uh, our day and age when, you know, sustainability and going local is such a big thing, a lot of chefs are or at least fine dining chefs, are turning towards these alternatives and like trying to elevate them almost. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Elevating local um, produce? Is, is in a what? sense, yeah. And uh, just produce in general, man. It's just how, how well they can do their dishes, pretty much. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Has there been a 
specific type of ingredient that you have yet to try? Mm, I mean, for sure, man. I, I mean, the world of ingredients is nuts. Like, Tell me you have set your eye on that you have yet to try. Uh, hmm. I guess there are a lot of game meats that... What is I, game meats? Game meats, so it'd be like a pigeon, pheasant, mm. wild boar, stuff that you know you don't find in Singapore at all. I mean, I, I think like the most exotic meat you can get in Singapore is like, I don't know, ostrich, crocodile? Yeah, yeah, crocodile. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's about it. Lah. So, yeah. yeah. And it's like, it's not like in, let's say, in in European countries, you know, you just go to your backyard and you're like, hey, shit, there's a wild ball, let's go hunt it. Or like, mm. you know, wild venison or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess in Singapore, it's a shame because we really miss out on a lot of quality ingredients that you can find. Um, I mean, yeah, you go to, let's say, NTUC or Cold Storage, you look at everything, it looks nice, but it doesn't compare to like, a market like let's say somewhere nearby like Australia you go to like Queen Vic market okay. and it's like bushels and bushels of produce that looks so green and beautiful and you know, it just makes you want to cook and it's quite sad that you know Singapore doesn't really have that okay yeah, yeah. do you think that's something that we would eventually grow into or do you think that it will always just be like it is right now I mean it's always nice to be an idealist but uh, <laughs> my prediction is fuck not uh. okay yeah because we are too small of a nation. We, won't, we will never be able to grow enough food to feed ourselves. And like, even if you expand the local definition to include, let's say, Malaysia, mm. the produce is not as varied as well. I mean, uh, okay. varied in a very Western sense. In a very Asian sense, there's a lot of biodiversity. Like for example, um, if you look at uh, wild herbs, okay. like uh, in Singapore actually, um, so there's a pranakan dish called nasi ulam. Where nasi nasi ulam, ulam. yeah. Okay. It's a it's a it's a rice dish where they mix like salted fish and uh, different kinds of veg and all that. So I think I had a classmate recently who was talking about it, and um, I think he went to the jungles of Singapore or some shit with his auntie to forage for like I think fourteen different types of wild herbs. What the fuck? And you can actually find them. Okay. That's that's the thing, you know. It's not that we don't have biodiversity, but it's like it's very specific. Almost. Okay. It's yeah. very specifically tied to... To our local cuisine. food culture. Almost. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, you won't find like um, uh, thyme growing here or whatever. Mm. But you get stuff that is suited for our our dishes. Lah. Do you think yeah. we would have stuff that people from a Western country might want? Uh, Yeah. I mean, it has been an increasing trend, you know? Like people, Westerners discovering our Asian ingredients and then... The Asians just like kind of laugh at them almost. Like, I mean, I have this every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I think the most recent one I saw was like Nigella Lawson. Mm -hmm. She like discovered pandan and then she was like freaking out. And then, yeah, I think the comment section was like lit up with like, uh huh. This is what people used to walk away cockroach or like, you know what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever nonsense. So yeah, I think naturally chefs always like to discover new ingredients to work with. Mm. Yeah, it's like yeah, and um. I guess for Western chefs, you know, finding exotic ingredients from from like all the different Asian countries and whatnot is something that they can play with. Mm. It's a it's a new um it's a new factor almost. So for example, like uh like miso. Miso is a very Japanese ingredient. But uh, okay, okay. Yeah, but a lot of um, Western chefs are using it because, you know, they're very into fermentation and stuff like that. So yeah, miso is big. So going to the the more scientific part of cooking, isn't it? Mm. But I mean, cooking is a science. Is how really? you look at it. Yeah, there's all measurements, man. Like, I mean, 
like okay, for example, uh, people yeah. always complain like it's steak hard to cook, like you know, I always get the wrong doneness, right? Mm. Here's the biggest life hack ever. Just buy a meat thermometer. Don't fuck around with your fingers or just use a meat thermometer. Okay. So essentially, um, so what, okay, so so what is step one? Yeah. So step one, you put your steak on the on the grill, yeah. whatever. Uh, I think maybe like let's say I don't know two minutes each side. Okay, set a timer two minutes. Yeah, two okay. minutes each side, roughly to get a nice sear. Yeah, you stick that in the oven for like maybe I don't know, depending on how long you want to cook it. Yeah, and then you take it, you you check it with the thermometer, check the internal temperature. Okay. Yeah. So for example, uh, I don't know if I get it exactly correct. It's been quite a long time since I was in school, but mm. uh, so rare is like hundred and twenty Fahrenheit. Yeah, it's American school, so we use Fahrenheit and all that. So yeah, yeah. 120 Fahrenheit and then I think medium rare is like 130. Okay. So on and so so. So yeah, once you get your inside to that temperature, just take it out, rest your steak and you're good. Ah, it's a perfectly good steak. Life hack. Life hack, yeah. <laughs> get a meat thermometer, it really makes a difference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So cooking is a science. Yes. And baking is an even bigger science actually. Yeah. So yeah, is, I mean- is, is one more difficult than the other? They're different. Because, I, I, I mean, I did learn some... We did have a few modules on baking and pastry. Okay. But uh, I wouldn't call myself a pastry chef. So, yeah. Um, in baking, it's a lot more scientific in the sense that it's all formula, you know. You have to have a certain ratio of flour, fat, sugar to make bread or whatever. Interesting. You know? And um, in cooking, it's a bit more aga-aga, you know. You can just like... Hey, That's what I keep hearing. Okay, okay. Yeah. It's it's like, oh shit, my dish is not so salty. Okay, let me just uh I, I add a bit of salt or like yeah. uh, it's a bit too spicy. Let's add a bit of sugar, temper down the taste, whatever. Yeah. You can't do that bread, right? I mean like you, you bake <laughs> you a fuck bread. Up the thing, yeah, then. you bake a bread like hey, this is not sweet, okay. We throw some more sugar. Yeah, it just doesn't work that way. Like in baking a finished product, it's a finished product. Unless I mean, unless you're adding like buttercream or whatever. Yeah. But the point is baking is a lot more strict in the sense that it's all formulas. Mm. And if you mess with the formula, the recipe just doesn't work. So another quick guide to home chefs, if you're following a baking formula, follow everything exactly. You don't like, hey, I prefer this brand of, this type of flour, I prefer this type of sugar. No, the formula is there for a reason. So cooking is a lot, in general, more forgiving compared to, yeah. to baking. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, you could, you could create a, your own dish on the fly, you know, just like, okay, I'm just going to make a chicken, uh, uh, let's do a sauce with this and that whatever yeah, yeah. but baking you can't really do that I mean unless you're very confident in what you're doing and you know like you oh, know the ingredients yeah and be like oh okay I want to add look, let's say for example for for um <clears throat> for uh, a bread oh I want to add uh, maybe add more liquid like some other flavor I have to reduce water in another way so you don't oh, use as much water okay, so for okay, example okay. if you're making something with like um a very I would say like a juicy fruit, maybe like maybe oranges or whatever, bread. and you, uh, I mean, not you're necessarily oranges. not necessarily bread lah, but like <laughs> okay. whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Okay. Like for example, if you're adding, um, if you're adding flavoring in terms of of things with water content, yes. So like fruits or whatever, you got to reduce the amount of water in your in your recipe. Oh, that's interesting. If oh. not, it may be slightly different. Yeah. It's almost alchemical. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. Mm. Interesting. Do you personally have a preference between cooking or baking? Mm, I mean, I'm definitely a savory chef first. But what's, um, what's a savory? Like a, uh, cooking lah, cooking. Okay. Yeah, but um, I mean, baking's fun. It's you know, it's 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 quote unquote easy to do. Like um, because you know, 
a lot of time is spent on waiting. You know, waiting for your dough to rise, waiting for it to brown in the oven or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm more particular to to the hot side of cooking. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So when was the last time you were in like a kitchen to 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 do like a live service or something? So the last place I worked at, um, it was part of my internship with school. Mm. I was at a Kendo Nut. What is Kendo Nut? Kendo Nut is um is a one Michelin star Pranakan restaurant at Dempsey. It's okay. run by Malcolm Lee. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was working there for maybe about four months, three, four months. What can you yeah. say about your experience? Oh, it was very good. Thanks a lot, Malcolm. Yeah, very good boss. Okay. And uh, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't shout at all, which is <laughs> very bizarre. That's terrifying. Yeah. Sometimes it's terrifying, but you know, most of the time it's nice. You know, it'll be like, you know, okay, for example, in service, most most like most of the time you hear like, okay, like, oh, one app fire, or like, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, one what, sorry? One appetizer fire, like, where's my fish, you know, that kind of stuff. One appetizer fire? Yeah. It means the appetizer is on fire? Or no, it means like, start cooking. Start cooking that yeah, appetizer. Okay, yeah, okay. like stuff like that. Like, there'll be a lot of shouting in the kitchen, you know, yeah. it'll be just like, okay, this ready, this that, this that, whatever. But Chef Malcolm, he'll be like, sometimes he'll come up next to you and go to your ear and be like, uh, I need two fish, can you know that kind of stuff. He's a very soft-spoken guy, lah. Yeah. yeah, and he doesn't really, yeah, he doesn't raise his voice much. But he keeps the place in check. Yeah, and I, I think it's also because Canada has a very big kitchen. Okay. I think um, uh, we have on any day maybe roughly around twelve chefs working, which is quite big. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, in comparison to other kitchens that I've seen, which I think the average for fine dining. Okay, this also kind of depends, lah. Um, but I think most restaurants the size of Canada in Singapore usually run with a team of about eight chefs, eight to ten. At but most. with lesser chefs, meaning anyone anyone in particular might have to double up or triple up in whatever that they are doing. Uh, Is that it? Not exactly, but more like they have a lot more responsibilities. Okay. Yeah. So for example, in Canada, I could be Let's say at my station, um, I was doing, I, I was like, um, yeah, there's no station name. Chop uh, onion. Okay, like, it's the, it's the, it's the Gaumanger station, which is like the co, Gaumanger is like the co station. So it's like, it's not exactly cola, but like, you know, appetizers, salads, okay. everything comes through there. And uh, I was doing a lot of sauces as well. So all the rumpas, I was frying and all that stuff. So yeah. So let's say that's my job role and I have maybe two other people with me to help me out. Okay. But in a smaller kitchen, all of that could be one person. It's still doable? It's definitely doable, but it takes a lot more effort and planning. Like, like you can't come into the day and not know what you're doing and like, okay, shit, let me form out my, my plan for the day, blah, 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 and I'll do it. Yeah. Is there a lot of flexibility in how you want to, um, I guess, manage this plan? Does, or is it all dependent on how the head chef would run it? Uh, because I you said you have you yeah. have everything in order, you have to come into mm. plan. So does the individual, let's say like you're like an intern there, mm. do you get the the flexibility and authority even to say, well, oh, this is how I want my station to be like yeah. and stuff like that? Yes, actually there, there is. I mean, all of it, I think in the kitchen, you, you know, your number one, the, the your reason why you're there is so people get their food, right? Yes. So essentially, as long as the end goal is met, I think, majority of chefs are okay to let you organize as you want. I mean, you still have to be organized. Mm. And it it brings some autonomy, but it also puts a lot of responsibility on you because you know that you have to have all these ready. And if you don't do it, that's on you. It's mm. not on anybody else that's on you because you either didn't prepare well, mm. you ran out of time or whatever. 
Yeah. So... Do you remember your first day there? Mm, my first day... First day, I didn't really do much. Because, you know... Hang you, <laughs> No, because you, you're still learning. I, okay, mean, okay. I mean, I did do service for the first day. Like, okay. I, I, yeah, I helped to play it and all that, but whatever. Um, yeah, and then you kind of learn more as time goes on. And then you start getting more and more responsibilities. Or sudden chef says, okay, you're running this station alone because, you know, we so know you can slowly, do it. it's a slow <coughs> ramp up. Of, yeah, essentially. Don't just throw you into one fucking station and yeah. hope you survive. Yeah, I mean, it's different if you're a stage, which is like, Volunteer help la. What's it's, a it's, it's a fancy French term for for slave labor, but you know, okay. it's, it's like students who want to get experience, but so they go to restaurants and then the restaurants don't pay them, but they work for like maybe a month or maybe weekend or whatever. Okay. Yeah, so that's a very big thing in the fine dining scene because you want that that thing on your resume, like, you know, whatever. Let, let's say you're, you're studying in uni, you just want to the you you just want to work in a restaurant like like something like that, and mm. you just volunteer. Like if you time. want the experience, lah, so you just yeah, volunteer time or whatever. So it's like I don't I haven't really heard much stories about staging in in Singapore, but I know like from classmates who've went overseas to stage, it's like yeah, it's it's tough, man. Yeah, like a prep cook, they give you like I don't know. Maybe 800 kilos of potatoes, okay. Have fun peeling them or whatever. How you know. much is 800 kilos? Okay, uh, okay I'm, I'm being a bit... Uh, dramatic. Dramatic, la, but you know... You, that, that, a fuckload of potatoes. Like. Yeah, essentially. Or like... um, So one of my friends went to... Uh, shit, I can't remember. But it's, it's a big restaurant in, in San Francisco. Mm. Um, I think one of his first jobs was like... Peeling peas? So you know like Pea is the little green things The green thing that nobody eats uh. You actually have to peel them Fresh peas at least Not the frozen ones Okay So I think he was peeling like uh, I, I, I don't even know the exact weight But it's like A giant bowl yeah. Of peas Every day Every day And then you do that It takes you I don't know Three, four hours yes. Eight hours at most, I don't know Jeez. But yeah I think in every kitchen There will be Certain tasks that take More time Or whatever like in Kendonat, um, Nohyang was a very big thing. It took quite a lot. Uh, preparing the bokelak was also also quite a, quite a headache. Mm. Yeah, stuff like that. Are these things that after your internship, even right now, you still remember how to prepare and how to cook and stuff like that? Mm. Here and there? I mean, I do have a recipe book. Oh. I have to take everything down because you know you you want to keep that consistency. Mm. So you have to make sure, okay, this is the recipe. It has, say, 22 grams of salt, 30 grams of this, whatever. So you follow that, you know. Is it always that easily replicable? No. I mean, I have candle nuts recipes, la, but I clearly can't go and make my own candle nut <laughs> because, you know, it won't be the, it won't be the same. La. Let's, let's just put it that way. Interesting, and, interesting. And also, produce can vary from day to day. So sometimes you have to oh. adjust on the fly as well. So for example, oh, let's say the chilies weren't as spicy today. What should we do? Wait, or, what? Yeah, yeah, it's a thing. Like, you know, it, it, you can't be that consistent in your food. If you're that consistent, means it's a lot, it's very genetically modified. Something like that. Okay. Yeah, in the sense that different batches have like different tastes almost. Okay. So you can have a batch of chilies that are spicy, a batch of chilies that are a bit more watery. And then because of that, you have to cook them longer so they can drier. So it's a lot of experience in that sense to kind of, yeah, yeah. to know what's happening and how how you remedy it almost. And yeah. that only comes with many, many years of being in the kitchen. Nah, not years. I think a few months. You really? Sh- you should be able to. Wow. Yeah. Honestly, cooking is not that hard. But, yeah, it just takes a lot of effort. 
Okay, would you say that cooking is not that hard, but working in a kitchen is a little bit more difficult? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, if you're being a home cook, uh, nobody shouting over yeah, you. Nobody shouting you can watch you. YouTube or you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at most, maybe your girlfriend or boyfriend, like, hey, this not very nice. Uh. <laughs> hey, your, your, your ego will be hurt. Try la. next time. Yeah, your ego will be hurt. La, but you know, <laughs> you're not causing the restaurant to like lose stars or like customers walk out or whatever. Mm. So, you know, there's like no pressure almost. And yeah, I mean, it's the same with any other working environment. La. Yeah, I mean, you could say, you could also say playing music is easy. You just follow chord skills, whatever. Drawing is easy. Mm. But you know, that's just there's a lot of nuance in it yeah yeah it's technically it's technically the right word technically easy seems easy yeah seems easy from the outside but actually inside it's not that easy somewhat lah okay lah let's, yeah, <laughs> let's just leave it at that lah yeah cooking is not that difficult everyone can do it but being a chef is different yeah interesting I think that's better yeah. so with Michelin star restaurants you were talking yeah in your opinion how important is like a fancy title like that to the the reputation not the reputation but to the cuisine of the food mm. I mean as a food journalist yourself yeah I think the Michelin stars is it's a bit of a flawed system how so? I mean it's it's a good benchmark for sure like I think the reason why people want Michelin stars mm. is because it's a good marketing tool you know they can raise their prices? not necessarily raise the prices but you know it's easier to market uh, a restaurant like the moment you say Michelin star people instantly think of oh this has a certain quality okay. or whatever okay. yeah I think the dark side of the Michelin stars is the um, the consistency aspect like I know there have been a lot more chefs nowadays who are like rejecting stars and like saying they do not want to be considered in this and there's also certain controversies that the Michelin guide in some countries are a bit biased um, towards, towards certain cuisine yeah, and they're like influenced almost that so you can buy your stars almost. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've heard reports. I think I'm, I'm not surprised. I yeah, mean. I think the most recent article I saw was about the one in Korea. And um, I think there was quite a big scandal of like someone paying someone to, to be included or whatever. Okay. And actually, okay, here's uh, some insider information. <laughs> uh, like at least for Michelin Guide Singapore, I think a lot of it is influenced by the tourism board as well. Mm, not surprised. Yeah, because, you know, um, a lot of journalists, I wouldn't name names, but a lot of journalists in the circle, in the food circle, have been saying that, you know, uh, Hawker Chan shouldn't have their Michelin star anymore. Who is Hawker Chan? It's the, that one star soya sauce chicken that's like $2. The one at the Hawker Center, right? Yeah, the one that like had a lot of international bus. Okay, okay. So that brought a lot of spotlight in Singapore. Yeah. So essentially, a lot of people are thinking like, you know, they're just leaving them there because you know it's 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 good, good they want to market Singapore as the hawker mm, mm. kind of center and whatever it's the place for street food yep. so naturally this looks good on on the tourism board mm. yeah so if you think the system is flawed would you happen to have a better better idea to propose mm. nah man I think that's just the way humans work because uh. you know naturally when you have a certification that proves that you are the top dog Mm. everybody wants it everybody guns for it it's just that innate desire to be better than people yeah. that I think kind of spurs chefs to be so ingrained in their pursuit for the stars or whatever yeah is this, it's yeah. okay do do elaborate a little bit into the procedure let's say if you're a restaurant let's say if I operate a restaurant is it mm. something that if I'm the head chef I have to constantly think of new ideas to, to attract that? Or how, how does it even work? Okay, so the Michelin Guide operates by... Um, 
according to them, <laughs> undercover inspectors. La. So they will go ah. to... So they have a very curated team of inspectors who will go country to country, visit all the restaurants, and yeah, give their and evaluations. be like a regular customer. Yeah, essentially. So they evaluate the place on like decor, the food, and the experience, the service, whatever. And uh, yeah, so... After they do that, and then they will come to their conclusions, and then the stars are announced. So, if I'm not wrong, sometimes you have to apply to be considered, but they won't let you know like when the person mm-hmm. comes or whatever. But uh, yeah, yeah. So mm. one star is generally good enough. So one star three, is yeah. one star is technically already very good. Okay, uh, I you're mean, cut acor- above the rest. Yeah, according to the Michelin guy, it's like one star is like uh, I think worth. Worthy of a detour or something. La. Then two star is something else. Then three star is like, travel to this country to eat it. You know, that kind of ah, stuff. Yeah, something okay, okay. like that. La. It kind of feels like to me, gotten to the stage where it's just pure pure marketing. <laughs> yeah, it's very good for marketing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just makes the it just makes the PR person handling the restaurant, the press release is so much easier to write. La, you you know? just put like the logo there. Yeah, just bam, two Michelin stars and like, everyone will come, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean like, shit, if you look locally even, like Odette, they just got their third Michelin star last year. It's you get uh, three, what, three? So if you get your third, you have three already? Yeah, you have three. Does, yeah. does it work like that? It stacks like that? Uh, It doesn't exactly stack like you add one, add one, add one. La, no, so it's one, one, one. <laughs> so it's just one, two, and three. Oh, you know? okay. So they were at two and then they upgraded by one star. Yeah. How, do, how does that work? <laughs> I mean, I guess it means they got a lot better. La. <laughs> interesting, yeah. interesting. So they went up to three stars and boom, all of a sudden there's like, I don't know, six month waiting list or whatever. And like, wow, yeah, yeah. So it really does a lot for a reputation. It, it's 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 a local restaurant. Yeah, yeah. It's at National Gallery, so it's uh, it's run Inside by National Gallery. Yeah, yeah. Huh. It's run by Julian Royer, and okay. I think it recently won um Asia Best Restaurant or World Best. I can't remember, but yeah, it's very. It's got a lot of accolades. Is it some? Is it a place you've visited before? I've not gone there per se, but I've attended a collaboration dinner with um. So it was Julian. So. Mm-hmm the chef from Odette yeah. and another chef from the States which was like two stars. So I guess I had a five-star dinner. La. Uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> I don't think it adds yeah, like I that. I don't think that it was that way. La, but, you know. I wanted to get an opinion on it. With, I guess with um, something as subjective as taste, yeah. with taste buds and everybody has their own biasness mm. because we talked about how food isn't just about, I guess just nourishment these days. It's about the whole experience. Yeah. How does one judge whether something is of a certain quality of not. Is it all entirely subjective to the judge and... Yeah. I think there are objective things like um, how timely the service is. Uh, oh, if the food okay. is served hot. Those stuff are objective. But when it comes to taste, yeah, you're right. It is very subjective. And uh, I think that's on the onus of the evaluator as well. Because, you know, you got to be... You, I mean, it's very hard to be a food critic and be like, uh yeah, I don't like spicy. Uh, or like, hey, I don't like this. I don't like that. Like, you can't really be picky, almost. Mm. Yeah, but it's true that different people will 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 appreciate different combinations and pairings or whatever. And uh, yeah, it does affect how how we do our food. But then again, um, as a restaurant, you know, usually you have a culinary identity. So you will culinary be, identity. So you'll okay. be like, oh, okay, we are an Indonesian restaurant. So we are going to do authentic Indonesian. So we, our seasoning, our everything is going to be very Indonesian yep. or whatever. I guess if you're doing like a fusion, then maybe you can be a bit more free in the sense that, you know, oh, we just do whatever the market likes, uh, you know, oh, adjust this, adjust that, whatever. Okay. Yeah. 
do you think there's a trend leaning towards fusion cuisine these days? Um, actually, one of the bigger trends that I think is happening, or at least I see happening from from the places that I've been to and all that, is a uh, is a uh, very specific ethnic and regional cuisines. Ethnic so, and okay. for example, in Singapore, Eurasian food. So, um, like there's a chef, Damon De Silva. He he has a new restaurant called Kin, and uh, his purpose of the restaurant is to showcase heritage recipes that you know have been like forgotten or whatever. So those are from like Eurasian Pranakan roots that are slowly being lost. And even in the Malay culture nowadays, there's a lot of people who are going identifying themselves even further and be like, oh, I'm Bugis, oh, I'm Boyanese or whatever. Okay. And each of these individual cultures have different ingredients and recipes that are unique to them as well. Mm. And I think nowadays people are starting to look at that a bit more. Yeah, rather than just, oh, Malay food is just nasi padang, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a lot more, I guess, nuance and diversity even in mm. something as, as common as Malay food. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Do you think it's a sign of the times where people are just owning their identity more? There's a lot more platforms and, uh, I guess, place to share. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it's I, easy to get the word out. Yeah, now. information is a lot easier to come by. So, you know, um, it's easier to show who you are and you know have a better representation of 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 what you're doing almost mm. yeah and uh i think the good thing about the social media age is the sharing of ideas as well so you know for example if you find a chef who's doing something similar to you let's say this certain ethnic cuisine i think you, you, yeah you know you can kind of bounce ideas off each other mm-hmm. almost and uh i think that's what's causing these uh, niche cuisines to really be uh something more popular yeah interesting so with your work with Epicure, yeah, you're a food journalist, mm. not a food critic, right? No, I don't think I'm a food critic. Yeah, is <laughs> is there a difference between the two? Uh, I guess because you know, I mean, a food critic's main job is to be a critic, like, Go to a restaurant and really give a very detailed breakdown of of every single factor that that is in there. Mm. But for a food writer, it's, it's it's a lot more general. You know, sometimes I get stories which are like uh okay, I'm going to see what are new openings in Singapore or whatever. Or like, uh, this, is a, this is a new menu from a certain restaurant and this is what he's doing. I wouldn't necessarily critique it, but I'll write about it. Yeah. Which, so, do, do you get to taste it? Because Yeah, yeah, for sure. Write, okay, for sure. Okay. So, yeah, tastings is a big part of being a food writer. Uh, it's a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I go for maybe, on average, three to four, two, two to four tastings a week. Did you go for any today? Yeah, yeah. I, I went for one today actually. Okay. For lunch. Yeah. I was at Blue Ginger at uh, Great World City. Gotcha. It's just been renovated. It's quite nice. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> does it does it get boring after a while? I wouldn't say boring per se, but it does it does have its negatives. Cause you know, sometimes you're really like you don't like, eat a chicken rice. Uh. No, nah, I mean <laughs> this okay, this sounds a bit choosing beggar, but you know, sometimes you really just too damn full. Uh. They, okay, they like okay. to overfeed you, you know. It's like, oh yeah, try this dish. Oh yeah, chef sending out something to like, you know. Interesting. Show y'all or uh, whatever. And you're like, oh, okay, nice, nice, nice. And then, uh, actually I got this thing at five o'clock. Uh, I'll be very full. Oh, I'm going to wow. eat some more. So you can have multiple tastings in a day. Yeah, shit. And they don't just serve you like <laughs> scraps or something. They serve yeah. you like full meals. Yeah, it'd be like wow. new dishes, a brand new menu. Order. So the most extreme day was, I had three tastings in one day. Jesus. Breakfast, so, lunch, dinner. Yeah, I had a I had a buffet lunch, hmm. and then I had a tea time tasting, and then I had a I had a like 
10 course dinner or something. <laughs> I was fucking dying. La. I was like, shit, man. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know what made me make that decision. Like, yeah, I'm just going to try three tastings today, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Do, do illuminate me like how, how, how this business works. Like, is it something like you have to schedule, you have to write in or do they, do they just offer it to you for, for like an article? How does, how does it work? I think for for bigger publications or publications like mine and like I guess the bigger bloggers and influencers, mm. the PR companies will have like a list of media contacts. Mm-hmm. So there'll be an email blast saying like, oh, there's this new restaurant, there's a there's a new menu or whatever. And then people will uh they'll send the invites out and then people will say yes or no. Sim- simple. Oh yeah. yeah. Interesting. So I guess for people who are looking to get into the world of food blogging, I think when you first start out, it's a lot of you own self-pay, lah, you know. <laughs> Go to a restaurant and you know, just eat. Do you think whatever. there's a difference between food blogging and what you do? Not necessarily, but I guess it's different in the sense that, for example, for food bloggers or online food media, yeah, it's a lot about the viral aspect of it, like how well it can be shared, you know. The article? Yeah, you just want to reach as many eyeballs as possible because, you know, that affects your ad revenue or whatever. Ah, yes. While for my magazine, our reader base is a lot more, it's a lot smaller Mm -hmm. and it's very curated in the sense that, yeah, we don't really, we're not really gunning for like, oh, one, three thousand shares or whatever. Although that would be nice, but you know, um, it's not really our main focus. Yeah. I guess we have the benefit of being a very niche publication is it still a physical print mag yeah we have a print magazine it's a monthly magazine Mm. we have an online site as well but it's not doing very well Mm -hmm. but I think that's also because the majority of the online space for Singapore in terms of food media is dominated by like smart local ebook whatever Seth Louis yeah Yeah. Yeah. it's a lot of these sites that you know they're easy to share you know easy to digest I think I think think from from my perspective is probably just a consumer. I think those sites offer a very good condensation of choices. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think, for sure lah, because also, okay, here's another thing, my magazine does not cover hawker centers or casual eateries Mm. unless it's some very big thing Mm. like Shake Shack or whatever. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, for sure, I think for the general public, those sites are a lot better. If let's say you want to find places to eat, like just on your off day, lah, yeah. not not like some grand. I mean, who the fuck goes eat? Who goes to eat twelve courses on a Wednesday? Nobody, right? <laughs> I, unless you, yeah, I mean, unless you are like bowling or whatever, <laughs> lah. Like, as an average Singaporean, your reality is probably just Thai fun and all that, lah. Yeah, which <laughs> I love. You know, yeah, you know, Thai fun is my thing, man. But you know, yeah, it's just it's just a different. Different reader base. I think I've seen a couple of Instagram accounts edifying the different types of chicken rice and different (laughs) types of (laughs) sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I love the different picture of chicken rice every day. (laughs) That's my go-to. I love chicken rice. But but personally, um, having worked in, or having experienced, like, I guess, your industry for about a year or so, is it something that you can see yourself doing continuously? Or would you want to try maybe writing for, like, a different type of cuisine or Mm. hawker or something? Mm. I mean, for now, I guess I'm pretty okay with where I'm at. But yeah, I know that it won't be forever because uh, the sad truth is print media is dying. You've a been saying ve- that for like a decade though. A very slow death. <laughs> oh, I think dear. I think for newspapers, it's still okay. But like for magazines especially. Because um, so we're currently owned by, uh, by a uh, private media group. 
which is called Media Group, creatively enough. Yikes. But yeah. <laughs> so I think we have like maybe about 15 publications almost. Okay. And I think last year, maybe two closed down. 2019. Yeah. So one of them was Teenage. So yeah. Oh. Yeah. So Teenage closed down. Yeah. Sad. But you know, that's just the truth of, of how it is. I mean, look, even eight days couldn't survive. They have to go online. Mm. You know, no longer a print. So it's like. Sign of the times? It's a sign of the times. La. Yeah. yeah. I think the money isn't that good anymore. Yeah. Because I mean, how most publications survive is Ad, advertising. Ad spaces, yeah. And I think for advertising, a lot of people are just concerned about the amount of eyeballs. So mm. no magazine can beat the power of the internet. La. Yeah, yeah. Let's put it that way. Like the power of Facebook, how you, how fast people share information. Yeah. I mean, okay, la, this brings up another topic of like how much, what's the conversion rate? La? You know, you got mm. 2 million views, but how many people actually yep, go yep, for it? Yep. But that's not the point. La. You know, it, it, it still looks good on graphs. Oh, our ad had. So X amount of views compared to oh the printed only had 10,000 circulation mm. yeah the numbers are different do you think print was a bit slow to slow on the uptake to adopt digital means uh, because there are there are still people interested in the content for sure mm. but maybe they're just they don't they don't feel the need to buy a magazine now because they yeah. can just google search whatever mm. I mean I can't say so much because I've only been in the media industry for about a year okay. but I think a big shift in the market is that for physical print media, people are looking for more curated um, curated publications. Curated by a person, uh, not by a robot. Uh. No, not necessarily a person, but just like a very focused. So there'll be like, um, I mean, nowadays, a lot of the, the youth are very into zines. Yeah. So like photography zines, mm. fashion zines or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think there's still something tangible, like something about having something tangible to hold on to that people still appreciate. So in that sense, media won't completely die out. There will always be a niche. But in terms of the big numbers, online is where it's at. And when you're online, it's a lot about SEO optimization and all that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not so much about how nice your website looks. Because let's face it, your website can be nice as fuck, but if nobody's looking at it, what's the point? Mm. They're not making any money, no one's caring, whatever. So yeah. Interesting. So what's what's your take on the food culture here in Singapore? I think we could do a lot better. La. You could do a lot better. Yeah. I mean... No, we, I think recently we've always been... I think the government's always been saying about preserving hawker culture. Yeah. They're, they're I, trying I, to? I wrote about that for one opinion piece in yeah. my magazine before. And I think my biggest gripe with, with the local culture is the fact that everyone goes like, oh, shit, man. I love hawker food. Let's preserve this culture forever. Mm-hmm. And then the th- uprise by 30 cent make fucking a lot of noise. <laughs> I mean, what's the point? La? You want to preserve a culture, you have to do something about mm-hmm. it. And obviously with inflation and all that, hawkers can't sell chicken rice for like $3 anymore. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's unrealistic. Yep. And that's provided that you are a first generation hawker and your rents are like, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000 roughly? First generation, meaning? Meaning that like Madaka, Madaka generation people are so People have been there from the start, yep. whatever. But if you are a current generation, like if let's say now me, I have no, I don't own any hawker store. I want to start my own hawker store. Rent can start as high as like nine thousand, sometimes even twelve thousand for for a hawker store. So it's like obviously people cannot survive with the prices obviously, of yeah. of yesteryear. And another big gripe, I guess, is that it's the whole we revere our food our local food culture so much, but we kind of brush it aside in the sense that, okay, let's put in this analogy. Lah. People shell out maybe 
16 to 20 dollars for pasta in a mm. cafe. Yeah. They don't bet the eye. 26 maybe then a bit iffy lah. <laughs> but I mean, come on, pasta is like Hokkien Mee in Italy lah. People just mm. eat that every day. It's like $3 there or whatever. Mm, mm, mm. The point is, why do you claim to, to, to worship our local culture so much but you're not willing to pay the price for it? You know? That's something that I won't understand about. Do you think just people because people got accustomed to it like paying I, like five dollars for like a chicken chop and when it increases to six everybody's like up in arms I think it's a it's a it's a collection of a lot of factors la. we like to complain for one mm. um, and you know Singapore is a very money minded society everything's about money I think, because, I, think, I think the word is pragmatic yeah I mean it's expensive you know what, what, what can you do but at the same time you gotta support support local la, you, mm. know, you know like I mean for sure I'll feel the pinch if I have to pay Ten dollars for my taipeng. Oh, that's you know? nasi parang, bro. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But like, to me, is that really too much of a price to pay? If you want to preserve something, you know what I mean? Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, yeah. Because that's that's really the the the, the that's I, I think that's going to be an ongoing conversation. I think moving mm, forward, yeah, 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 for sure. Because at the same, it's like also like the like. The amount of effort you put, like I mean, I don't know how many of 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 the listeners like ever make rumpa la, But what's a rumpa? So it's like the spice base for like curries and all that. Okay, but it's a lot of work, man. <laughs> and it's like, shit, you want to pay like, charge two dollars for it? Hell no, man. Mm. Like, for example, rendang in mm. um in Canada, it's like a it's like a six hour process. Yo. Okay la, estimate la, estimate six hours. Like, plus minus. La. Plus minus la, like you process everything, it's like maybe one hour. You yeah. braise the meat for like two, two, two to four hours. It's yeah. still like, marinate and all that nonsense. So yeah, it's a lot of effort for one dish. So people do, do let's say for Canada, do people do it overnight or they come in six hours earlier to do to, to it? How does that work? Uh, I'll t- no, usually you'll just, you'll prepare in advance lah. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, so okay. you will, like in kitchens, you will never prepare on the day itself. Gotcha. What you're doing on that day is always for service like maybe three days down the road. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. You have to. If yeah. not, yeah. So, would, would you say that let's say hawker cuisine, the effort put into it is equal, it could be equal to that of people doing it in a restaurant? Yeah, of course, man. Like, you look at people doing Hokkien Mee, they stand over a hot walk for like 12 hours a day just to bust out one plate of food. You know how much dedication that takes? Huh? <laughs> I mean, it looks simple. Like, you throw yellow meat, seafood, all that nonsense. But you know, it, 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 it's, it still is something deserving of preservation. And and I think people need to respect that a lot more. Mm. And yeah, just don't be a bitch. Uh, pay, just pay a bit extra. Uh, <laughs> do it's do you okay. think it's a, it's, it's a problem not because of price? Prices, yes. You could always jack up the prices, but it's just yeah. because of I guess the image of it, um, the perception of it, that is making people unwilling to to even show show not just money, but I guess a little bit of empathy to a certain degree. I think so, so la. I mean, okay, yeah, fair enough. It's unfair of me to to say that because that's what a hawker center is, right? It's supposed to be cheap food for the masses. That cheap, fast, cheap, fast food, food for the masses. Yeah, yeah, that you know everyone can buy la. Yeah, but I mean, it's still sad, you know. I mean, it's because of this this mentality that. I think nowadays most hawker centers and kopitiams, you see the same brands. It's all chains now. Like Kofu. The Kofu. And even, and even then, like dark rice, I can't remember what's the name of the dark rice. Uh, Yuki. 
like Yuki duck rice is everywhere. Oh, it's like become a brand at this point. Yeah. So it's become so commoditized and, and, and commercialized that you know you have to be a mass big brand to be able to survive because people are not willing to pay more price higher is, prices for their food. Kinda, that's kind of sad. Yeah. yeah. And it's like how you look at okay, like for example, I think I, I know a friend who like owns Taifan stores. Oh shit, for real? Yeah. You want name drop? Where? I can't remember lah, but yeah. <laughs> but basically he owns Taifans, two Taifan stores and like he just hires like like Malaysians because you know it's just so much cheaper lah. Yeah. Yeah. So everything at the end of the day comes down to the dollar. You know, you gotta be in the black. You can't be in it the is red. still a business after yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. People gotta survive. People make money and you yes. pay all your stuff, man. Yes, yes. So like yeah. Yeah. It, it's a very difficult topic that I think the government could help a bit more, you know, with a bit more subsidy or whatever. To in order to like appease the people working and the masses lah because you know they are counting on hawker centers to feed them. Yeah. So naturally there has to be better government regulation in that sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the government can definitely do better. For sure. I think uh, rent control is important. Yeah, I didn't even know you could, you could go up to 9,000. That is pretty fucking ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, and that's a hawker center. I haven't even talked about shopping malls, man. So uh, a friend of mine owns a, owns a franchise. Um, she, she owns the, the Maki-san at Badok Mall. But the, the new one, right? Yeah, the, the, the new one. I've so visited it quite a number of times. Yeah. So that's, that small space, yeah. I don't know how many square feet. Lah, but I'm, if I'm not wrong, she told me the rent was like 23,000? A yeah, year. no, month. a month, a month. <laughs> yeah, and the funny thing is, they're still making money, lah. So you know, that's the power of of having a, a big brand behind. Mm. Yeah, that's also another reason why you know shopping malls nowadays is all the same. You go to this shopping mall, you go to that shopping mall, you get all the same tenants because they're the only ones that can survive. Mm. Yeah, but I guess in the long run, it kind of it kind of pulls away the diversity of what it could have been. Mm. Yeah, I didn't even realize that a lot of the kopitiams were beginning to be chains. Yeah. Uh, until you said it, I was like, yeah. yeah and yeah, not just kopitiam brands, like even stores themselves are chains. Like, like, like as I said, the Yuki duck rice, mm. it's everywhere. It's in Kofu, it's in this, it's in that, it's in whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah. It'll be a very like bastardized version of a hawker culture, isn't it? I mean, not bastardized per se, but like, refined like you know very yeah. <laughs> very prim very prim and proper very Singaporean you know it's like yeah. look at how sp- brand new sparkly this is everything's mm. the same you know that kind of that kind of vibe and like yeah I mean it, it, it does take away from the the uniqueness of of a hawker culture lah, for okay. sure for sure and that's something that the gov- that that could be done a lot better yeah no, okay, I guess to 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 wrap up this conversation I'm interested to know what is the weirdest thing that you've tasted? Alright. This is easy to answer because um, yeah, so I was in Mexico and uh, I was there because uh, my class went to, to America to, to visit the school there and then we had some time and two of my friends and I we flew out to Mexico from Cali. Gotcha. You know, just for shits and giggles like, and yeah. spent like five days there. And to do blow. Yeah, <laughs> not really lah. Uh, yeah, but just you know, wanted to go there and explore. Yep. It's very hard. You don't usually yeah. see Mexico a lot. I mean, yeah. you have to make a point to, to travel. Out yeah, there yeah. Like in Singapore, like there's no direct flight to Mexico. You've got to fly to US, then you fly down or whatever. Transits, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So South America is like kind of this unexplored region. <laughs> I mean, for sure, it's possible to go there, but it takes a lot of effort, lah. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, so we were at this restaurant in Mexico and. um 
we had like uh, uh, guacamole with crickets. What? Um, so it's like deep fried crickets that you just like top on, mm. the, uh, on the avocado. Yep. And then we had escamoles, which are... Snails? No. No, they are ants eggs. So ants? Like, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, ants, ants eggs. eggs. And uh, what f- they're amazing, man. Like, I mean, if you picture in your mind an ant's egg, I don't know what you think. Well, like tiny? Is it? What? Actually, it's uh, it's like it, it looks like an egg sack. So it's like a little tic tac. That's a really big egg. Yeah, it looks exactly like a tic tac. Not that I think about it. Huge egg, dude. Yeah. So they kind of they they stir fry it and then like you know you just eat it like that. So you you'll be eating a bunch of tic tacs. Yeah, like man. That. So it's like a it's like a it's like a dish and it's just eggs and like you know vegetables did, and whatnot. Did you guys know what you were ordering? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We okay. just like oh shit, this looks interesting. Okay, let's let's go for it, Because okay. you know, being a culinary student, you gotta like. You could try everything, man. Adventurous. Yeah. And shit, it tasted like crab roll. Like, you know, the inside of the head of the crab. Yeah. But like a tiny version. Yes. And it like kind of pops in your mouth because, you know, you got to chew the sack and then it just goes boom. And then it's just, the yeah. And then it's like, it's like, you just get this nice burst of flavor and it's yeah. really good. I recommend everyone to try it. Mm. Yeah. And um, what else? Um, I mean, I've tried calf brains. Um, so you're a pretty adventurous eater yeah I mean being in this industry you gotta eat everything because if not it's like I think it's like paying respect almost to the culture interesting yeah because like you can try it you don't have to like it yep yeah but of course when you come across something that's surprising it's a plus you know you're happy to taste it yeah yeah and uh Sometimes different cultures you discover ingredients that you know you never think people would eat almost. What what do you mean? So like in, in Mexico there's a there's a there's another dish ingredient called a huitaloche, I think I'm pronouncing Yeah, huitaloche. It's a it's a corn truffle. Corn truffle. truffle. Okay. So it's a parasitic fungus that grows on corn. Interesting. Yeah. And people eat that. So it it tastes like a mushroom. But it's got the texture of corn. It's a brain fuck. La. So it's like the first time I had it, I was like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just something really, really cool. La. You know, you yep. don't you don't see that a lot in Singapore, you yeah. know? And like, yeah. So I think when you open yourself up to cultures, you really get the ex- the benefit of you know being experienced to so much more, seeing things that you never experience in your own world purview. And you know, yeah, I just think that's that's just the way you should live, man. Does anything turn you off though? Any food items or oh, taste? Uh, no. Actually, there's one. Mango. No. no. I, I hate celery. But like, raw celery. I mean, cooked celery I can do. But raw celery I just don't like. For some reason, doesn't I don't know why. Doesn't it taste like... I'm, I'm, I'm not a vegetable person, but doesn't right. it taste like any other vegetable? Or does it have a really specific No, it's, it's a very specific taste. It's like... Yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I, just, I just don't like it, man. It's, it's like... I don't know. Maybe it's too fresh. I don't know, it's just like this burst of of green. I'm just like not prepared for. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't like celery, man. But yeah, I mean, it's common. I mean, I I don't expect everyone to 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 like everything, like, like, I mean, mm. uh, durian is good, but you know, not everyone eats durian. Yeah. And like coriander, so a lot of people hate coriander. Mm. I, I like coriander, but yeah, the point is, you should be more open. More yeah. open. Mm. One last question: What is your take on the recent trend towards diets? Different diets. types of diets. Uh, vegan? Yeah. And the different subcategories of vegan diets. Mm. And there is the, the all-meat diet. 
eat only meat. Yeah. Paleo diet. What is your take on things? I like mean, it, it depends on, on what you mean by take on diet. If you mean um, diets in terms of which is the most effective, mm-hmm. here's the secret. None. They're all the same. It's all about reducing your calories. Mm. Yeah. Because uh, the average human needs like, uh, like, like a human male needs like maybe 2.2 to 2.5k calories okay. a day. Mm. So you just cut that down and eventually you lose weight. For example, you just eat 1.6 calorie, K calories a day. Yeah, you lose weight, man. Mm. It doesn't matter what diet you do. As long as you keep within that calorie count. Like, shit, you can even eat like, I don't know, two Big Macs a day. And if it's below 1.6, you'll still lose weight. But yeah, um, in terms of the other aspect of it, like the um, the ethical portion, I can really appreciate it. I think it's good that more people are looking at alternatives to meat mm. because it's not the most sustainable thing. I mean, I won't change because I love meat. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I should lah. Adopt more, maybe uh, meat-free days or whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> your Thai fan all Thai. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Thai fan all Thai. You know, cheap also, right? Yeah, Two fifty yeah, yeah. for three Thai and veg. One yeah. tofu. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. So um, I think it's good lah. Like like um, vegetables are the way forward in the sense that they make a lot more sense to produce. You know, they don't take up as much resources. You don't have a face. Yeah, you know, you, you can feel good eating them, new body, <laughs> you, you know, you just feel good. You know, everything is like, you know, fresh and whatever. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love vegetables, man. Vegetables are vegetables are dope. And like, yeah. Um, I think it's just good to be aware of mm. your impact of what you're eating and what that, that, that would mean. Yeah. Like for example, for, for seafood as well, that's another very big topic because... Ocean stocks are declining. May predictions are like, oh, in twenty fifty there'll be no more fish. Twenty fifty. Yeah, that, those are some of the predictions that I've I recall reading. Okay. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, being mindful of that. So, for example, there's um, uh, there's like a seafood watch list that tells you what fish to eat and what fish not to eat. Interesting. So it's like, oh, you can't eat this fish because the stocks are declining. We need them to to replenish themselves almost, and uh, yeah, being mindful of that will will certainly help. In Singapore especially, a lot of people are looking at uh, locally produced fish. So for example, um, Kubara is a, is a local farmer, uh, aquaponics. Um, they, 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 they farm um, baramundi, uh, sea bass. Okay. Yeah. And um, a lot of people are, are using them now because, I mean, I guess it's trendy to be sustainable. Mm. And it also makes sense, you know, Mm-mm. it's from nearby. Yeah. And um, yeah, Singapore is quite a bit of local produce. Not enough to feed the whole nation, but you yeah. know, there is there is some. But it's, I, I guess it's the kind of thing that it's it's good to have la. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Fascinating. Mm. I think that's I think that's the direction that, you know, we should go towards. Alright, so twenty fifty we can expect no fish then. <laughs> that's that's a sad thought, man, because you know, shit. Fish is good. Twenty fifty is not that far away though. Yeah, it's like thirty years, man. But I guess it's it ultimately boils down to a supply and demand thing, isn't it? Mm. I guess if you don't, let's say oh, yeah, yeah. You, you don't eat that much, then people won't care. Because people will definitely still catch them to, to yeah. sell and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's def- it definitely has something to do with demand. Like, I mean, if you look at tuna, for example, tuna has been overfished so much mm. and to the point that one tuna sells for like, I don't know, I think like millions or hundreds of thousands almost. Oh, because wow. Like the good ones, especially yep. like from Japan. Yep. And um, yeah, it's a supply and demand thing, you know. And I guess if it takes to the most extreme, if 
they almost completely die out. There's no supply. There'll be less demand and hopefully, eventually, the supply will come back. It's just how long. Yeah, but then again, knowing humans, it's like, oh shit, okay, this is done. Let's go to the next big thing. (laughs) I mean, now, Bluefin Tuna is like, it's like dying, right? So like, you know, people are going to like Skipjack, Yellowfin, all the different kinds of tunas. We have been likened to, the human species have have been likened to a parasite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, some people like to say, you know, global warming is the fever that will burn us out or whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you just got to take care of the earth, man. Uh, are these, uh, let's say these considerations about de- depleting population of, of certain produce and everything, yeah. are these things that you're able to write in your articles? Uh, definitely because, um, so my magazine goes by teams. So I think uh, last October or something was our sustainable issue. Interesting. Yeah, so we we work closely with um, restaurants who were dedicated to serving sustainable food. Um, We highlighted like uh, certain producers, like you know snacks or whatever that are sustainable. Um, Our Christmas issue was also themed uh, a mindful Christmas, so we were sourcing for for um, gifts to fill our gift guide that were sustainable and like, or they gave back to society or whatever, and. uh, yeah, so we we every time the magazine we kind of spin like there'll be a certain angle and we'll write our articles based on that. Yeah, yeah. So sustainable for travel will be like oh sustainable resorts resorts that are uh contributing to the local economy yep. like giving back to the oh, to okay, the okay. to the people in the surrounding area rather than um all the all the money going to a conglomerate somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. that's that's pretty cool. Mm. Yep, yep. I guess to, to wrap up, is there anything you would like to plug? Your personal IG, your personal chef account, certain <laughs> Taifan store, uh, your favorite Taifan store. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, personal IG, I, my account's all shit posts. Last. I mean, if you, if, you, if you guys still want to follow, you can find me at Dustin. It's, it's uh, D O O O O S T I N. Jesus. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think that should be a pretty good indication of the kind of content <laughs> I create. La. Yes. <laughs> Mainly shit, la, but you okay. know, whatever, you know, I just do it for fun. You know? Okay, but uh, is there a particular uh, is there a particular store or dish in Singapore you think people should try? Store or dish? Huh. Recommendations, really. Mm. Or your favorite prata place, the cheese prata, they're very nice. Oh, um, yeah, see, this is the tough part of my job because, you know, there's a lot that I could name, but you know, I think it kind of depends. Your go-to, like, your comfort. Go-to, uh. Okay, let's let's talk about chicken rice uh, because you know earlier we talked about chicken rice. Yeah, Katong Boneless Katong Shopping Center Boneless Chicken Rice is the The fucking expensive one, right? No nah, man, it's not expensive. It's uh. like seven dollars one? Nah, it's like I don't know. Okay, la, I mean it, it, Comparatively it, la. it comes with everything. It you know? does you come got, with everything. You yeah. got soup, you got acha, acha yeah. you got vegetables, and like, yeah, it's just good food, man, and it's relatively cheap. Yeah. I mean if you can find a seat. Yeah, 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 there's always like a fucking queue there. Yeah, and yeah, it's such a good place, man. You go there, have nice chicken rice, yep. and you go to Doha Manis, get some... Like, oh, the bakery. Cho- yeah, get some chocolate tarts. Yo, yeah, the bakery. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of gems in Singapore, man. I could go on whole day about, you know, all the different listings, but, you know, explore, take the time, you know, just walk around. You know, you might find something that you might you didn't know was there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think Singapore is very enough that you can still do that. <laughs> in the right neighborhoods, of course. The- <laughs> Don't go to like... Geelang hey, is pretty good food. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, for hey, sure. Geelang is, is like, food. yeah, I mean, you got everything there, right? You yeah, everything. Everything, <laughs> literally everything. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, naturally, go to the old neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, Tiong Bahru is great. Mm. Yeah. 
the Taohui there is really stellar. It's like the best Taohui, even better than like Sichuan Tohua. Okay. So like some fancy restaurant, but yeah. Yeah. I guess I'll end it on that. Alright, it's a wrap. Thank you for your time, Dustin. Right, Destin. Thanks. Dustin? Dustin? Des- Destiny no why? Destin. Yeah. Destin. Thank you for yeah. your time. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired. Don't forget to keep posted for the next one. And if you really liked what you got, give us a follow.